Hello, everybody. Welcome or welcome back to Danger on Delmarva. My name is Rhonda Jefferson, and I'll be your host as we explore the dark and winding roads that lead around the Delmarva Peninsula. Today, we will definitely be reviewing one particular stretch of road, a small bridge to be exact, in a community named Woodland in Sussex County, Delaware. Woodland is kind of on the outskirts of Seaford, Delaware, and I grew up in Woodland, so I have a lot of fond memories of riding my bike with my older sister as a child, even though at times she was probably more than a little anxious to have me, you know, stay at home because she was nine years older than I was. So, you know, having your kid sister tag along with you like that probably was a little annoying. But, you know, there were some summers we spent just, you know, riding all around the area. And it was, I guess, in some ways, it was pretty close knit, even though it was a very large area of land. It wasn't a neighborhood in the sense that every home was right next to each other. But while that was the case in some areas, in others, the houses were very far apart, as the name implies, it was in the woods. There were always trees around, um, a few ponds and tributaries of the Manicoke um, or offshoots of the river. So it was great to grow up there. And the person um, who wrote a book regarding the legend that I'll be talking about today also grew up in Woodland. She's actually started to write a series of books, and there's four books that she's written so far, and I believe more in the works, that focus on Delaware um, and some of the legends and stories around the area where she combines the facts that we know to coincide with a timeline that is more current, um, you know, more modern to today, so that it's more relatable. So as she'll mention in an interview that I do with her, um, and her name is Kelly Liggy, it's you know, that she does look at the dual timelines. And so, you know, at least I know that while reading the book that I've read so far, the one about Maggie's Bridge, it helped look at the differences in situations in the 1880s, um, 1860s, um, as compared to today. So while I've finished the first book, there are other books in the series, and I have one that I bought as well that I'll be reading next. So just a few things before I get started. First is just a little bit about the format for today. After I'm done with my normal introduction and information, I'll go into the first part of the interview um, between Kelly and I, and then I will tell my version of the local story or legend of Maggie Bloxham. As with many stories that have local legends or lore, there are somewhat different versions of the story, and usually it's not anything that is incredibly crucial to the story, but still they are slightly different. So I deliberately didn't finish reading all of Kelly's book until I'd finished typing up, you know, what I remembered of hearing of the story. And so there are a few differences. So if you do go and read the story that Kelly wrote, um, called Maggie, I Have Your Baby, you will notice some differences. But as I'll reflect as well, sometimes I think those differences in the retellings is that whoever told the story originally to the person then retelling it may have had slightly different motivations in the reason they were telling it, so changed up specific things to make it either more relatable um, or more pertinent to that particular situation. Also, um, I will have links in the description for um, some of Kelly's information, where to find her books if you do want to follow her and you know order any of her books and 
then also get notified when she has new books coming out. Just to give you some background on how I found out about the books, um, and Kelly is, I had received an email about craft nights at the library, and admittedly, since the pandemic, I've kind of become more of a homebody. You know, I only go out when I have to, which is bad. So I wanted to, you know, go out to more activities, do more, and decided to look at those craft nights. And then I went to the library homepage and found out that Kelly was going to be talking there on last Friday. And as I had already been planning on doing a story about Maggie's Bridge, I thought it was perfect timing. So that was a nice coincidence. And then um, we'll also discuss it briefly in the interviews, too, is when I was very young, um, just when I noticed and really felt like I loved to write, I wrote a very short story in the house that... I based it on was in Woodland, you know, you kind of write what you know, and it was a house that was iconic, at least to me, a large, older house that I would pass when going to the Woodland Ferry. And Kelly actually used that house in the book. So, you know, apparently it left the same impression too. It's very memorable. And just during, you know, other conversation that was not necessarily in the interview, there were really a lot of coincidences. Because there were two parts of the interview that um, we did, what I may do in some sections is summarize my part of the interview, just in that while going through and editing, I found I probably talked a little too much. So to kind of paraphrase it and you know, make it so that the episode is not two hours long. I might condense some areas because I really want to emphasize, you know, a local author's works and all the effort that she's gone into writing these books. I will have another episode out within the next few days. And as usual, I will also provide my content warning. So especially as this has to do with a haunting, it may not be suitable for every listener. Also, my computer did not have enough memory to record the interview with Kelly through Zoom, so I did have to record it on my phone. Um, So admittedly, the sound quality is not going to be great. I did my best to go through and clean it up, and I'm also experiencing the same issue with just recording you know, without the video through Zoom. So, you know, again, I'm going to go through and try to clean up the audio as much as possible, but it may still come out um, sounding a little bit distant, I guess is the best way to describe it. So I'm trying to free up memory on the computer, but it's more of a basic needs computer. So there's not a lot of memory. Um, So Basically, any of the programs that I've downloaded have taken up most of it. And even though I have an external hard drive, it's still telling me it's too low on memory. So I'll be working on that for the next episodes um, after I finish not just this one, but the next one. And hopefully I'll be able to get enough space freed up so that I don't have to free up space before each recording. Thank you for your patience on that. I really appreciate it. And with all that being said, let's meet Kelly Liggy. Thank you so much for talking with me today, Kelly. Um, I found it really coincidental. I was going to do a story on Maggie's Bridge for what I'm calling Spooktober for the Danger on Delmarva series. And when I went to look at some library functions, I saw that you were speaking and that's how we kind of got in touch. Um, okay. So, so can you tell me a little bit about what kind of was the impetus or driving force behind you beginning to write and how did the books become about come about and I know I'm throwing a lot here right now um also you know you kind of combine the fact and fiction you know the really historical accuracy but then fiction so I know like I said I know I threw a lot at you there but I think they're all kind of connected (laughs) 
Okay. Well, how it started was uh, the pandemic occurred, and I, uh, well, my my job um, was supposedly put on hold because I ran a gift shop at the Nanticoke Hospital, and I was at home. You know, I was on unemployment. I was at home. I was taking care of my mother, who at that point was in the uh, middle stages of dementia. So we were in the house a lot, and um, I decided to see how many books I could read. Like last year, I I read 100 books while I was writing these. So I had a lot of free time, and I got a book from a woman who I followed on social media. Mm -hmm. I found out that not only did she make these cute little videos, she also had written a few little books, and I thought, well, that's great. I'll get one of those, and I got uh, picked one of them. They're ghost stories, and I read it, and I thought, okay, it's a simple story. It's nice. I enjoyed it. If she can do that as just a person who has a platform, why can't I do that? And so I thought about it. I thought, well, what would I write? What do I find scary? When have I been scared in my life? And I grew up watching horror movies. I grew up reading horror books. My mother was very open to that sort of thing. What really scared me were real life experiences because on the screen or in words, there's a disconnect for me. I don't get really scared by movies and books and stuff anymore. I I think I'm just old and hardened. (laughs) But real life, if someplace is haunted and you want me to bring my physical body there, Then things get a little sticky. Like, I'm not a huge one on going to uh, haunted houses at Halloween or haunted hayrides. I like all that stuff, but I don't necessarily want to be terrified in real life. And my own son, um, when he was born, uh, had some ability to see things that were not there and was kind enough to give that ability to his mother. Thank you very much. Um... Just a little, just a, just a tiny little hint. So I thought, okay, how about ghosts? What ghost stories do I know? And there was one, there was the ghost that I used to go visit with my friends back in the eighties when you wanted to get scared or you were, you know, you'd take a girl out there if you wanted to scare her that so that she would sit close to you or whatever. And that was Maggie's bridge. And I thought, okay. I'm familiar with the story. I I read about it. I knew that there were several variations on her theme, but that that was her name and she had died on the bridge. She was running away from home. Those were, you know, the answers across the board. That's what everybody said. And then I thought, okay, so who was she really? What was her personality like? Who was she running away to? Why did they feel like they had to leave? What was their situation? Did everyone know about their relationship? Did other people know that they that she was pregnant? And that's why they had to run away. Where were they going? And I started wanting to answer these questions in my head. And I thought that it would kind of be fun if I did a dual timeline so that I could kind of have someone representing who I was and what I went through on the bridge and kind of bring it to life and then tell Maggie's story at the same time and hopefully bring those two stories together at the end. And that's kind of the theme for all of the books I wrote. I've got different um, ghost stories from places in Delaware. I haven't had to go outside of Delaware yet because we've got a lot of them. Uh, Not the ones that are really well known that have a lot of facts. I'm looking for sort of the, the almost forgotten stories where they they just eventually could vanish if someone doesn't continue to talk about them and kind of make backstories for those. And I have the same uh, present day character moving through all of them, having the different experiences. And of course, now things have happened to her. She's moved on. It's been about a decade uh, in her life through these stories, but it's nice. She keeps discovering different ghosts in Delaware. She's having, she's having quite a time. They're everywhere she goes. What? is Maggie's Bridge. Maggie's Bridge isn't an official name, but the bridge is a place that many people like to visit, especially teenagers on those boring evenings in the summer where 
if you're from Woodland, at least, you may live miles away from anything that can remotely interest you, except maybe to see if Maggie wants to come out and talk to you. This is especially good to do when it's a full moon, but even more so during the blue moon. So you and three friends decide to brave the darkness that envelops the roads deep in the heart of woodland, as sometimes even the moonlight can't reach through the canopy of trees. Many decades ago, maybe even more than a century, Maggie Bloxham was a young woman who was facing an indescribable challenge. Though the exact date or even decade that this happened can be in dispute, it does seem as though the events, which are based on a true story, happened in the late 1800s. Things were so much different then. There were so many strict rules and compliance with social customs, and those expectations were more than just suggestions. They were requirements. This was so much so that even parents might turn their backs on their children if those children did something that was out of line according to society's standards. And in Maggie's case, she crossed one of the biggest lines that were drawn in the sand. As a young, unmarried teenager, Maggie found herself pregnant. She desperately loved her baby's father, but stood in fear of her parents' response when she let them know that she was pregnant. She knew that the response would be swift, harsh, and severe. She had seen them so many times before be so deeply regimented in their expectations that she really believed that this supposed sin may cause them to disown her. She had to get to her one true love, to marry him and to go away with him. They had made these plans. The repercussions of her unplanned pregnancy would be severe, and the only way that she could even face it was in his arms. So she climbed aboard her family's horse and carriage and started towards his home, speeding to meet her lover, whose name has also been lost to the annals of time. It was dark, with a storm starting to rage, but as she had left a note for him, and they had briefly met before this arrangement, she knew that she had no way to contact him in order to postpone it. Plus, she was afraid that the longer she went, the harder it would be to hide the pregnancy from her father and mother. So it had to be tonight. Every time she looked down at her stomach, she wondered if her parents could see it. But she couldn't think about that much longer. She just had to get to him. She wished that she had been able to walk, but the homes were really too far apart for her to carry her belongings and to get to him. But taking a horse and carriage also left a few other loose ends. She had to worry about whether or not the noise would wake them. She also had to worry about her parents being able to get along without the horse and carriage as she and her betrothed would take it with them. She hated to do that to them, but there really was no other choice as they needed to make their escape. She was also afraid of the long walk on the very dark roads that she would have to travel. Even though the roads were just as dark traveling by carriage, at least she would get there faster. She raced along, maybe even a little faster than was safe, as there was barely any light breaking through the trees. Lightning crashed all around her, but still she labored on. She kept her eyes focused ahead. There were many creeks, rivers, and ditches along the way, but she was especially worried about a small bridge that turned sharply. The bridge really wasn't that sturdy either. It was meant just to quickly get across with no frills, and she always hated traveling over it, but even more so at night. As Maggie approached the bridge back in Woodland, the horse became spooked from the storm, and he tossed her. Before she had any time to react, she felt herself hitting the hard ground with a sharp pain going across her throat, neck, 
and then back. She thinks her head somehow hit some spikes that were on the wheels of the carriage before she was thrown down into the water below. Those spikes can be sharp and very dangerous, cutting with enough force to dismember or maim someone, or even worse. When Maggie came to, she found herself wet, but strangely enough, she didn't feel any pain. She stood and looked around, but what she saw didn't make any sense. She was standing up, but as she looked at the water, she saw a form lying face down, or at least it would be face down if it had a face or a head. It was dressed in the same dress that she was. So did another young woman have an accident that night? But strangely, she felt this connection to the form in the water. She walked around the front and gasped in horror as she saw the blood, the stump, where a head once was. And she knew it was her. The arms outstretched. She recognized the small ring that she wore on her right pinky. A gift from her father when she was very young that no longer fit her ring finger. But how could she be staring at herself? How could she be in two places at once? And then panic hit her. What about her baby? She quickly looked down to her stomach and where once she had been able to make out the hard, soft, round bump starting to form, there was now nothing. She leaned down and tried to roll over the prone figure in the water, but she wasn't able to do so. Her hands passed right through the body, and that's when she understood. She couldn't believe it, but it had to be. There was no longer any confusion about what had happened. She knew if she were still alive, she would be hurting. So it dawned on her that she was dead. She wouldn't need to worry about her parents' punishment or the shunning by her community. She wouldn't have to worry about anybody's judgmental stares. And now the only thing she really needed to worry about was finding her baby. And if he was okay, she had to get help for him. And almost as an afterthought, she wondered if she should try to find her head too. If she was buried without her head, would she lose it in the afterlife as well? Maggie, dying in such a tragic circumstance, was not able to leave the bridge, but she does live on. She's been searching the water for 150 years, hoping still to find her baby. She found her head about 20 feet from her body. It was just underneath the bridge. She tried to go and pick it up and bring it back to her body, but it didn't work. Just like when she tried to touch her prone body lying in the water, her hand had gone through her hair on the now decapitated head. After walking around in circles and trying to find her child, she finally went and sat on the riverbank and brought her hands to her head to try to pull some of the wet hair away from her eyes. But as she did so, she found that her head was actually coming off in her hands. For the first time in a while, she started to panic again. She thought, my God, what's happening? Until she realized that her spirit form would have to match her body. And so now she would have to carry around her head for who knows how long. Was there ever going to be a time when she could be released? She didn't know how long she had been wandering. It could have been hours, days, weeks, maybe even longer. The night stayed dark. The storm stayed raging. And occasionally she would hear some voices, but she could never really make out what they were saying. She had seen her father not too long ago. He had come by the bridge with one of her neighbors driving him. As they got to the bridge, he had quickly jumped down and tried to run into the water, but the neighbor stopped him. It was pretty obvious that his beloved little girl was beyond help. She wanted to yell out for him to tell him that she had a baby and he had to find it, but the neighbor continued to console her father as he sunk down to the wet ground on his knees. Lightning flashed ahead, 
just as he let out an uncontrollable sob. He would have to go back and tell her mother that her little girl was gone. The neighbor tried to get him to come with him, but her father stayed on the bridge, and as soon as the neighbor left, he jumped into the water, and upon seeing his daughter's form without her head, he yet out, let out yet another scream. Still later, someone else came back with the neighbor, and together they pulled her out of the water, quickly finding her head. Her mother had followed them to the bridge, and Maggie's father wrapped his arms around his wife, trying to shield her from seeing their baby. And all too soon they were gone. She had hoped that once they had picked her up out of the water, that she and her body could be reunited. And maybe then she could feel if her baby was still with her or not. But that didn't happen. And so she continued to walk and walk, only occasionally stopping to sit down and reflect on why she couldn't seem to find the baby. She had wanted to name him after his father, so she had started to call his name out. Then she heard voices again. She was sitting on the bank, and as she heard, Maggie, Maggie, we have your baby, she stood up. They had found him. She was about to be able to see her baby for the first time. Maggie, Maggie, we have your baby. Without really knowing how, she was almost at the bridge without any effort. Maggie, Maggie, we have your baby. And then she was on top of the bridge, looking at a young woman in the distance. She slowly turned around and saw that there was a person on each corner of the bridge. One of the young women ran across to the man and threw her arms around his neck. Maggie figured they had to be married. That was the only way a woman would touch a man like that in public. He also put his arms around her, so they had to be married. But what was that thing behind them? It was this big metal machine, would you say? It was like nothing she'd ever seen before. It was large and black, and it had windows. The couple started to run towards that thing, and it had doors as the man opened up the front door and the woman opened up another door across from it, and they both got in. Then all of a sudden, it made this loud noise and started to move very quickly towards her. She didn't know what was happening. It was like it was moving on its own, and then it went right through her. And then she was back on the riverbank again, looking up as the other two people jumped into that machine. She wondered what kind of people would yell that they had her baby, knowing how much it must hurt a young mother not knowing what happened to their child. How could people be so cruel? But soon she heard it again. But this time, she felt stronger, angrier. After hearing someone yell it for the first time, she found herself directly onto the bridge. Lightning crashed above her, and the loudest thunder that any of the four people on the bridge had ever heard erupted into their ears. She quickly turned around to look at all four, and none of them were holding her baby. But there was another machine there like before, a little bit smaller, and again, two of them ran to it and opened the doors and got in. And again, it came towards her, then through her, and she was back once again on the riverbank. And this happened so many times. There were times when she was stronger, like when the blue moon was out, just like the night that she died. She came to figure out that if there weren't four people there, she didn't get that strong and didn't always make it back to the bridge. But if all four people stood at the corners on either a full moon or blue moon, then she was at her strongest. Then she sometimes could even make the weather obey her commands, causing those who taunted her to yell and scream, and she even came to love the fear that she heard in their voices. Anybody who could do this to a woman who had lost their child needed to be punished. She began to feel joy every time she heard a scream. This made her laugh, which only made them scream more. 
she noticed that the machines that the people came in had started to change. She didn't think she had ever seen the same one twice. She had figured out they were like horseless carriages where one person could get in on one side and he or she could control it. Just as she had learned to control the weather at times, she learned that directing lightning towards the carriage would cause it to stop. Sometimes sparks flew from it. Other times it just wouldn't move anymore or it took longer to move. Either way, with each passing second, it caused more fear to rise in the throats of those who came to mock her. There were times, though, she didn't feel like coming to greet these people, those who would come and dangle the thought of holding her baby in front of her, only to never be able to reach it. They might have been the lucky ones. On those days, she just decided to stay on the riverbank because she knew after hundreds of times, that they didn't have her baby, that no one did. Though there was still a glimmer of hope, she had really recognized that there was no way a baby could have survived that fall if she didn't. It was just too young, but she wanted to know what happened to it. Was it buried with her? Did it somehow make it into the water? She just didn't know how it all worked. Her mother never told her about what it was like to have a baby. So she really didn't know. So yes, sometimes she just sat there. But on those nights where she was so angry about what all of life had taken from her, that it had taken her family, her lover, her baby, any opportunity she had at happiness, then she would let them see her. She would make them quake with fear and never come back to make fun of her again. But so it continued and continued. Time after time, Maggie, Maggie, we have your baby. Maggie, Maggie, we have your baby. Maggie, Maggie, we have your baby. And sometimes the draw was just too much. And before she knew it, she was back on the bridge again, staring into the face of a frightened woman running to the arms of her man, which made Maggie only more angry because she never got to feel the arms of her lover around her again. A crash, a boom, a scream, repeat, 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 over and over and over for eternity. So Maggie's lot in life, well, it was pretty abysmal. There were things that were not talked about then. Some young women, probably even most, didn't understand how their own body worked. And it was probable that their mothers didn't really know how it worked either. There were things that we know now that seem just to be common knowledge that women at the time of Maggie's story wouldn't have known. And even if some women did know, it wasn't talked about in quote unquote polite society. Maggie faced a very indefinite future when finding out she was pregnant. Even if her parents had been loving and accepting, her community would not have been. There may have been some who tried to help her and accepted her, but most would not have. I like to think that maybe Maggie's parents were more soft-hearted and would have just welcomed her no matter what and would have welcomed the joy that a grandchild would have brought. But odds are that wouldn't have been the case. There's a church not far from where Maggie's bridge is, and so it's not hard to imagine that her family would have been part of that church. And I do know there are different perceptions of church and how they might view an unwed mother. Again, I, I'd like to look on the more compassionate side in that I would hope that a church could be forgiving and understanding and, again, welcome anybody in with open arms and try to support anybody in any way possible. But given the time period, that most likely was not the case. So Maggie felt that she was left with no other choice. In some of the following conversation that I have with Kelly, 
um, for the second part of the interview. I am in some ways consoled in the fact that a lot of society's perceptions on you know, an unmarried mother have changed since Maggie's time. However, there are still some things that I think about, such as, you know, in other countries where, you know, people don't have the same access to reproductive health, such as a birth control pill um, or any type of birth control that we have here. And also we have a better understanding of how our bodies work and can make better choices based on that. We also have a less regimented society where in the 1860s, 1880s, everybody pretty much was expected to marry young. Most women didn't work outside the home. So there were a lot of differences. And just on the same day that I was recording this, I saw a short documentary that covered some cases, crime cases about young mothers who killed their children. Um, many of the cases were where the teenagers didn't tell their parents that they were pregnant and then either killed or tried to dispose of the baby without getting any help. So that was very disheartening. So that even though we know, you know how pregnancy can occur, how our bodies work, that babies are dying tragically. It's also heartbreaking to think that they didn't feel like they could you know, speak to their parents, most likely, or feel that they could turn to anyone. So that had to be terrifying to go through that alone. I had touched upon briefly in my introduction that a lot of stories of local lore and, you know, folk tales, some might call them old wives tales, just so many different types of stories, you know, traditionally now they're more called urban legends, is that sometimes the situation changes to either make the story more relatable or to get a certain point across. And if Maggie's story was retold, and we know it decades later, you know, that a young woman died on the bridge while she was pregnant, then we have to ask, was the story retold? so that young women wouldn't find themselves in trouble and that Maggie's story would be used kind of as a warning against that. There have been some people who said this story takes place in the 50s or 60s and you know the, the carriage is a car, um, not the horse and carriage that Maggie had in my telling of the story. And if that's the case, I think it's because the story was updated some to make it more relatable to teens of that era instead of going back to the times of a horse and carriage. And just lastly, before we go into the last part of the interview, is there's not a lot known specifically about Maggie herself. And I just can't help but wondering if it's because she did bring shame on her family or what society would have said was shame at that time. And so that we only now know that a young woman died on the bridge, tragically young, and with that, the life of her unborn child was lost as well. And the man that she loved also lost the woman he wanted to spend the rest of his life with and their child. And so now, here is the rest of the interview with Kelly. And like I said before, the interview was more conversational, so it will kind of pick up mid-conversation where we're talking about some similarities that we shared as far as growing up in Woodland and what those experiences were pre-internet days. There were some similarities because I grew up in Woodland. You know, I spent my summer tagging along with my sister who probably thought I was a pest. Uh, <laughs> on my bike, and we would just steady cross the ferry. And when you said, you know, like it wasn't a, it wasn't like a huge distance, basically. I'm like, yep, but that's what we did. We just kind of got on it with our bikes, and you know, back and forth. It, you know, when you grow up in Sussex County, you take your thrills where you can get them. Yep. 
<laughs> and actually, I, when I was very little, I wrote a story. And the, the house I based it on, I was like seven, so there really was not a lot of detail, is near the Woodland Ferry. Like, if you get to the end of what used to be called RD3, there's like a big Victorian house off to the left. It's like right, right around the ferry. You would turn left at the end of Woodland Road, um, and there's the big house, and then you would turn al- almost immediately right, and you would go to the ferry. And that's where I based the house, like a picture of the house from. Okay, so so wait a second. When you are taking the immediate right to go to the Woodland Ferry, like, are you talking about the blue, blue-gray house on yes. the corner? yeah. That's the same house I used! I really, it's kind of it's kind of falling apart now. It was for sale, and been, I, I believe that it has. Um, from what I've seen, it's been purchased since then. I don't know what they've done to it, but in my world, it got renovated. Oh my god! It was perfect. It was right there. It had been there long enough. It was built, you know, before the time of my story, so it made sense. You know, that's that's a hoot. Yeah, if you're from Delmarva. Because I do act, I do have some listeners from Australia, Ireland. <laughs> um, so Woodland, yeah, it's if you're, from, if you're from Woodland, you know, you say something and you just know. I like having, um, I will like download pictures or take pictures. I love having um, a visual thing to look at to help me imagine a a house or a character or somebody. So mm-hmm. I have amassed in a big scrapbook of literally the photos, the reference photos I've used for every character that I have written in any story and every house. And I mean, even the, the bookstore mm-hmm. is an actual, um, it's a hair studio that exists off the circle in Georgetown. It is a, a literal actual house that I was like, that's perfect. In my head, it's a bookstore. So we're going to, you know, I'll have to look at that. It, next it, it helps me a lot to have those those visuals in my head. Yeah, I think as most readers will do when you're when you're reading a book, you're trying to make those visuals. And you know, I guess just that house being the first house you would, depending again on which direction you're coming from, that would be one of the first big things you would see approaching yeah. the Woodland Ferry. And you know, that just kind of stuck in my head throughout the whole story, and I'm imagining. Claire going in there. It's also it, it was also very close to the church. Mm-hmm. It was the right distance away from the bridge. It was very close to the Woodland Ferry. It just it all was perfect for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was for sale, but I didn't buy it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wouldn't want to actually do the renovations. I, I can't afford that. But it's you know in a beautiful place, right right there, looking at the water. It's just yeah. yeah. And Woodland is I, the right name for the place. Um. <laughs> it really is. Yes. That's what I try to, to get in, uh, people to understand when you go out to the bridge because of the way that the road curves when you are on the bridge. There, you can see the little bits of the road, but you are cut off from everything. I mean, all you see is the water and the trees and the little bridge. Mm-hmm. So it is very easy to imagine a different time. It is also very easy to imagine that there is no one else in the world and you are out there all by yourself. Yeah. And except Very for, creepy. Except for the graffiti that you describe in your book. Right. Um, I love the graffiti. <laughs> uh, and I found it fascinating because I visited the bridge um, repeatedly over the course of about 18 months. And messages that actually say Maggie, they stay there. People, they do not cover them up. But they will come back and, you know, Frankie loves Susan will get covered up by the city. But the messages like, where's Maggie? And I hope you find your baby. They all, they let them stay there. I think maybe to market. I don't know. But it's, it's a neat place. I love it there. But maybe not so much at night. <laughs> but in the daytime, I love it there. And, and except for that graffiti, yeah, it really feels like you are going back in time whenever you go out into those woods. There's actually lots of places around here that... <laughs> there are. There are. And part of me really, really loves that. I, I remember when I first saw the Blair Witch Project mm-hmm. years ago, um, they went into the woods and I'm like, 
I mean, I know it's not here on Delmarva, but it's very, very close. I'm like, oh man, I know those woods. I know that kind of woods so much. It made it even creepier for me. And there's even just really tiny nature reserve down the road from where I grew up. Like very tiny. Your parking is on the shoulder of the road. Right. um, Which I kind of use for the Wacomico Catman um, episode in that there's no parking spots. But once you go like a few feet in there, you are not out on the road again. You're not, yeah, you're, you're cut off. Um, the woods so, will swallow you right up. And even still now, and you kind of touched on it too, there are places you don't have cell phone service. Mm-hmm. And when we, my husband and I had lived in Wilmington and when we moved back down here, um, there were some places that didn't have internet or cable. And that was, when you have two kids, that's kind of a biggie when it comes to, Oh my. Yeah. It's like, no, yeah, we're, we like that house, but we're not getting it because, <laughs> you know, we have kids and, you know, they need to watch SpongeBob. <laughs> oh, I love SpongeBob. Yeah, um, absolutely. But before we go, I do just want to find out some of your experiences at Maggie's oh, Bridge. Okay. Um, sadly, when I when um, I gave the talk at the library. Uh, one of my friends that I used to actually go out to the bridge with actually showed up, but I was already doing the reading, so she she missed um, the beginning. So I couldn't actually embarrass her by calling her out. But I can remember very vividly. I know that there were many times that we went out there, but I remember very vividly going out there with my boyfriend at the time and Christy and her boyfriend at the time and we went out there and the guys made us do just how it plays out in the book. We're standing on the corners. We call for her. I was absolutely terrified. Oh my gosh. And of course I was about 16 or 17 and I was going through a phase where I was pretty much scared of everything. I did go through a tiny phase where I wasn't interested in horror movies or horror books. I, I got, I turned chicken for a little bit, but it went away. But during this time was when I had the worst experience or the best experience, depending <laughs> on the way you look at it. Well, we went out there and it was probably about 1130, quarter to 12. And we stood on the corners and we had bats fly over, just like in the story. That's absolutely true. And I love bats. So I wasn't, I was um, more, um, I wasn't as frightened. I was frightened by the sound. But once I realized it was bats, I was fine because I <laughs> love them. But we did see lights, and they were not lightning bugs. And they did move towards us, and we were, well, the guys were pretending to be cool. You know, they're not afraid. But (laughs) us girls, we were ready to go. We were ready to go. We ran. We got in the car. And it would not start. It absolutely would not start. It would not turn over. There was no click. There was no noise. There was nothing. And... We kind of started screaming. (laughs) I like to pretend we were cool, but we were not cool. We kind of started screaming. And I cannot remember Christy's boyfriend's name, but he was the one driving and he was trying to start it and trying to start it. And it took more than three tries. It took a good five minutes before anything would happen with the car again. And finally, finally, when it did, I don't know if maybe he flooded it. I'm looking back with my like old lady thoughts thinking, Maybe he flooded it trying to get away. I don't know. But he finally got it started, and we peeled out of there and would not go back over the road. We found an alternative route to get back to Seaford. He's like, no, I don't want to go over the bridge. I don't want to do it again. Um, Yeah. And back then, we didn't have um, Bluetooth or whatnot. So the experience that I had recently when I went to the bridge was a whole different animal. I took my boyfriend out there. And I, it was daytime and I was showing him the bridge and I'm like, this is where this is. And this is where I wrote that. And he's like, oh, it's beautiful. It's great. We get in the car to leave and it took him two tries. He didn't say that it wouldn't start, but it did take him two tries. And I didn't ask. We, we get away from there. We go down, we turn around, we come back. Like we went down the road a little bit, found a turnaround and then came back over it. When we hit the bridge coming back, his Bluetooth disconnected and the entire car filled with screaming static noise. It was, it was awesome. (laughs) I screamed. He was like, you know, and he started shaking his hands at the wheel. And then we just took off and 
after we were about, I don't know, before we got to the house we're talking about. So it didn't take very far. It just reconnected again, just like that. It was just, it was out and he hadn't had any problems. It has never happened before and it has never happened since, you know, anywhere else. It was just that one occurrence right there. So. And to you listeners, um, when she was talking about when she went out there when she was um, a teenager and she said, like, they did not want to go back over the bridge. They didn't go back over the bridge. Let me tell you, when you have to go up and around to try to get back, it's dark. It is not it's a so simple dark. process. This is not, okay, we're just going to go a minute out of our way to have to get back. No, no. So let me tell you, if they did not turn around and come back, they were scared. They were. Yeah. Um, it is so, 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 there's not street lights out there. This is, this is technically the middle of nowhere almost. It was so dark and it, the woods are very close on either side of the car and it's just that narrow two lanes. At any moment, any sort of animal could come out into the street because if you live here in Sussex County, you know that when you drive at night, you have to watch out for everything. Deer, raccoons, foxes, possums, squirrels, you know, Everybody just wants to, you know, run straight across the road. And you could see any manner of anything. So just try to imagine like a dark tunnel of trees with no other lights, no sound. If you have the full moon, you're lucky because then you might be able to see a little bit better when you're standing out, like, say, on the bridge. But, uh, yeah, it's a dark place. Yeah. And I imagine, too, um, and this is just my thought process, um, you know, there's a bridge in Seaford. Do you know where the flagship Ronaldica used to be? Which my dad, oh, of course. My dad actually did the mooring, the concrete on that. He was a brick mason. Oh, wow! Um, okay. But in the late 60s, a car actually went into the river. And um, tragic. And my, my mom knew some of the people involved or one of them. And oh, she my. Was, she, the, the day the car was found, she knew. She told me exactly who it was and she was 100% right. But I asked, oh. I said, this is 1969, I believe, was the year. If not 68, it was in the 60s. I said, how could they not have seen the broken guardrail? Right. And she said, there were no guardrails. Right. And this was in 1969 in a major road. What mm-hmm. I would consider a major road through Seaford, through Delaware, actually, going Delaware. into Maryland. Yeah. And there were no guardrails. So as I'm picturing Maggie leaving, I'm picturing that they didn't have guardrails on this bridge in 1969 imagine what a bridge back then would have been like and you you kind of describe the bridge here and she talks about it's it's just pretty much it was a utility bridge it was not fancy you you got across it and so Mm -hmm. these yeah it can be really dark there but we are running out of time so i would like to thank kelly very much for oh you're very welcome thank you for inviting me you're very welcome. And I will include some links if you want to find out more and follow Kelly on Facebook.